and gentlemen, how's everybody tonight? Uh, if y'all expected some grandiose thing, I am so sorry. This ain't it. <laughs> um, for the size of the class going forward, um, those of you that are in the group me, I'm going to ask that you, that you put your prayer requests in there. I don't want to forego prayer requests, but with a group this size, you know, when we're just small, when we're 10 or 12 normal, it can carry on for 20 or 30 minutes with your prayer requests. I'm going to ask just for the sake of teaching time this go-round that you shoot them into the group me. Uh, if you've got something that's urgent or just, well, not that it's not all urgent, but a prayer request that really needs to be lifted up, I, I do want to take a minute to do that. So if somebody has something like that, I do want us to cover it. Does anybody have anything going along those lines that we would consider life or death at the moment? We've got family that have just gotten out of the hospital. We have families that are going into surgeries that I know about. Um, we have school having started, uh, incidences at school that need to be prayed over, uh, all kinds of medical needs. Am I leaving anything out? Uh, if you don't have the group me, if you will just text me your name, just to make sure I have the right person, if you are in the group me, you know you are because we do prayer requests in there all the time. Uh, let's see. Yeah, that one's dead. text me at 404-427-9429. Like I say, just send me your name. I will send you the invite for it so that you can get on the list. Yeah, that's a white There's a blue one in that Ziploc bag. In that Ziploc bag, but I think it's about dried out. We, the God-fearing people of Rockridge, <laughs> Unaccustomed as I am to public speaking. My word in heaven. Yes, he did. Can you read that? Better? Let me take it over here for John. You're already in it. You may not know it. Y'all be sure to tell John thank you at the end of the day. It's always nice to have an eyewitness to biblical events on hand. All right, well, let's, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll dive in tonight. Uh, the condenser mic, if you've got a question as we go, there's going to be plenty of times for questions. Um, let me go ahead and say this. Rule number one has been the rule for this class since day one. If I get to going too fast, throw your hand up, say, could you please slow down? I have no problem with that. I get excited about the material, and there's a lot to get in, and I'll start trucking, and sometimes I just get to going fast. And if I do, say, whoo, slow her down. And if you've got a question about something we talked about, don't be like, well, he just said this. I'm, I'm going to feel stupid. Don't do that, because if you've got the question, I guarantee somebody else has the question, too. But let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Father God, Lord, we thank you for tonight. Father, we thank you for the freedom to gather in your name, Father, the opportunity to gather in your name. Father, the blessing that it is 
to gather in your name, to study your word breathed out by you. Father, this is just a little slice of your mind given to us, but yet it impacts us so greatly. Father, for the medical needs that we have within our body, may you work in that. Father, give doctors wisdom, give nurses wisdom. Father, give them guidance. We thank you for providential healing through nurses and doctors, God, and through medications. Father, I thank you for the scientists that develop these medications. Lord, you work in so many ways. Your hand is constantly weaving your tapestry together, Father, and we give you praise for that. Father, we praise you for healings that will be given. Father, we praise you for ultimate healings in the bringing to you that will be experienced. Father, for social needs at school, Father, with family members, Father, I ask that you work. Father, that you be in those situations, Father, that you speak into that. Father, that you draw your children together. Father, that you mend broken hearts, that you heal broken spirits, God, that you be exalted, Father, that you be glorified. Father, for physical needs that need to be met. Father, for housing. Father, for vehicles. Lord, food, in some cases, we ask that you provide. Lord, you said that we would never see any of your children begging bread. And we have faith in that clause, Father, and we put trust in that promise. <clears throat> Father, that you have called us and that you as a benevolent Father, you take care of us. Father, for every situation that's represented by every soul here tonight, Father, I give you praise for the other side of the journey. Father, for the other side of the trial. Lord, just like the disciples, you said to get in the boat and go to the other side and you'd meet us. Father, there is a guarantee that we will meet with you. Father, we thank you for that. Lord, as we now come to your word, Father, may these people hear a better lesson than I am prepared to teach. Father, set me aside. I'm just an old clay pot. Father, I'm made unto dishonor, but you, you are the sweet wine. You are the water of life. You are the bread that sustains us day in and day out. Father, there's nothing we could do to ever bring true praise to your name, to give you all the glory and the, all the honor, Lord. Father, for we are feeble and we are weak. But Lord, as best we know how tonight, may our conversation be joyful to you. Father, may it be glorifying and uplifting to you. May it exalt you. Father, may we laugh. But Father, may we study and may we learn. Father, may we learn more about you that we worship you better. Father, and in that worship that we proclaim you better. And Father, in that proclamation that others know you better. Father, that's our goal, that we do everything to lift you up. Father, it ultimately, at the end of today, our cry is change us. Make us more like you today than we were yesterday, Lord. Father, we ask that you unfold these pages to us, that you tr give us a true revelation of Jesus Christ. Father, that you open our eyes, that you remove any scales that we may have. Father, that you open our ears that we may hear. Father, we seek you and none else. Father, we seek your glory and your praise and none of our own. Father, be with us. We ask all this in the pure and life-changing name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. All right, for the past couple of years, we have been trekking down this path towards Revelation. We've been in Daniel. We've been in Matthew, uh, and as we go through Revelation, we'll touch down in Zechariah, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. 
We'll touch down some in Zephaniah and a lot in Isaiah. But tonight, I want to kind of go over a few terms in our introduction. There are four ways to look at Revelation. There are four dominant views that are expressed. The first one is what we call the idealist. Anybody have an idea as to what the idealist view of Revelation might entail? Just feeling some folks out. The idealist view is allegorical. And when we say allegorical, what do we mean? Telling a story that it's all symbolism. We're kind of like an Aesop's fable almost. Okay? The idealist views it as all allegorical. Now, there are benefits to it being allegorical, but there are more cons than there are pros to it being to their view. A pro is that you don't have to worry about textual alignment. You can take hermeneutics and you can just throw them to the wind. It doesn't matter what Daniel has said. It doesn't matter what Isaiah has said. It doesn't matter what the Lord Jesus Christ has said because we can bend any scripture to fit anything in this book. The ease of doing that is the only pro to this. That's the only good point about it, is you don't have to put in the work. But conversely, that's a con to being an idealist view of this, is there's no textual subjugation for the passage. You don't, <laughs> if, if Daniel says that a beast is a political entity, well, when you get to Revelation and there's a beast, oh, well, this is just a person. Well, we don't have a precedent for that. What we have a precedent for is it being set up as a political entity. It could be a king, it could be a ruling body, it could be a nation as a whole. And we see that in Daniel, do we not? In Daniel chapter 2, we're given a timeline. What's the timeline? Come on. Yeah, apparently my kids aren't the only ones that have suffered summer suck out. We got that. Nebuchadnezzar has a what? Dream. A dream. And who does he charge to tell him about this dream? No, he doesn't charge Daniel. The wise men, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers, the astrologers. In fact... John says he's testing. I think he forgot the dream. But what does he tell them the first condition of this is? You tell me the dream. Tell me the dream. And then not only tell me the dream, but do what? Tell me the interpretation of the dream. Now, what is Nebuchadnezzar's dream? The statue. He got a statue. Can I get you? You're a little bit better at this than me. <laughs> My handwriting says I should have been a doctor. I, just, I, do, I, I do have an eraser. Let's give it up for my lovely assistant. <laughs> well, I had an eraser. All right, he's got a statue. Now, the stat, what, what's unique about this statue? Different types of metal. Okay, what's the first type with the head? Gold. It's gold. Now, 
What is the interpretation of the gold head? Who or what is it? It is Nebuchadnezzar. Out of this whole statue, it's the only one that's given to a single individual. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, thou art the head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold is you, not your government, not Babylon, not Babylonia. You, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. And afterwards, there will arise a kingdom inferior to yours, and it's represented by what? Chest and arms and their silver. Now, when Daniel says inferior, he doesn't mean that the metal is less than the gold or that it's less valuable than the gold. It's just lower down on the statue. When he talks about superior and inferior, we're actually talking about physical position, higher or lower. And so we've got a chest and arms of silver. Now, who does that represent? The Medo-Persian Empire. And ironically, in Babylon, Herodotus tells us that everything is covered in gold. But then the Persians, when he travels into the Persian Empire, he tells us that everything is silver. Taxes are paid in silver. Wages are paid in silver. The army uses silver. They don't, gold's nice and it's a decoration, but it's considered an inferior metal to the Medes and the Persians. They have some gold, but they really like silver. And so we have chest and arms of silver. Well, after that, what's next? Belly and thighs of what? Bronze, brass, whatever you want to call it. Who is this? It is the Greeks. And Greek culture arises, and we call that the Bronze Age. This is actually where the historians get it, and the archaeologists, they get it. They looked at that bronze. Well, you know what? When Greece does arise, they really do use a lot of bronze. We, they begin to make metal alloys. And so they call that the Bronze Age, and that represents Greece. And you'll see these body parts getting a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. Well, the kingdoms last longer and longer and longer. And then after the bronze with the belly and thighs, we have the legs of what? Iron. Who does this represent? Rome. It represents Rome. Now, we've got two legs. What happens to the kingdom of Rome? It splits. We've got the eastern leg and we've got the western leg. About how long does the eastern leg last? Well, uh, how, how long does the western leg last? We talked about this several times. The eastern leg lasts up until the early 1700s, actually. Um, trying to remember who, which emperor it was that was actually listed as a Roman citizen when the United States came into being. He was actually listed as the last Roman citizen as one of the emperors in Turkey. Um, but it lasts up until the 1700s, really. But the western leg, what we, what we call Rome, Italy, France, Germany, it actually starts to disintegrate in the 400s. And so you've got a short leg, you've got a long leg. But then there's something odd that happens with the statue. What's, what's next? The feet. The feet are what? Iron and clay. The clay actually here would actually be considered porcelain. It's very brittle. That's the word. It's, it's clay that's made from dust. And what you would do is you would take a binder, usually a stomach bile or something from an animal, a little bit of water, and you would mix it with this dust, and you would turn it into the clay, and then you would form whatever vessel out of it. And so we have the last section of iron and clay. Now, what happens to Nebuchadnezzar's statue? It's destroyed by what? A rock that's not cut out by human 
Stone cut out without hands. A lot of you had, I just won't, trying to condense a little bit. It's destroyed by a stone that's cut out without human hands. And what does it do? How's it? How? How? Where does it hit it? It hits it at the angles. Hits it at the feet and the ankle area. It destroys it. How bad does it destroy it? Crushes it completely. Remember, is gold a hard or soft metal? It's very soft. And yet it says that it makes the statue as the dust of the wind. The amount of force you would have to have to ionize or particleize dust is a huge force. And it scatters it to the wind like the chaff of wheat. So we're given a timeline in Daniel. Now, does this play out? Does this apply to us? Is it, we, ideally, we would just say, oh, there's going to be these five great kingdoms in their way. And, you know, in that fifth kingdom, there's just going to be something that's just not man-made that just comes and destroys it. And, I ideal, and as an idealist, how do we apply this? As an idealist, if we're looking at Revelation through the, through the eyes of an idealist, that everything's allegory, we don't have to make this fit the book of Revelation, but we know that this is a key to the book of Revelation. How do we use this if we're an idealist? Can we use it? That must be the stone that it shook the kingdom and destroyed the kingdom, okay? You could say that it ends with the destruction of Rome and that's it. You, you could do that as an idealist. See, when we're, when we're standing on this shaky ground, we have no way of actually using it. It's kind of like trying to drive a clown car where the wheel turns 50 times before the wheels ever turn. And you're just sitting here, you're spinning your wheels for nothing. You're not going anywhere. Is there allegory in Revelation? Yes. yes, there is allegory. Is the whole book allegory? No. Okay? So we have the idealist view where everything is allegorized. <coughs> Excuse me. Next up, we have what's called the craterist view. Praetorist means past. Anybody want to guess what the Praetorist view all is? All that happens in 70 AD. Now, it didn't all happen in 70 AD. It all happens between the death of Jesus and 70 AD. 70 AD is the culmination of Revelation because Nero's name spells 666, and the temple's destroyed, and so then the, the church age really begins, and the church age rules and reigns up this until this we're living in the new heaven and the new earth. <laughs> well, no deposit, no return, sorry. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Christ, we believe, died in 30 AD. The death of Jesus. And then he rises in the same year, so we're going to stick with 30 AD. And then the temple is destroyed in 70 AD. How many years does that give us? 
That gives us 40. Well, you know what? The ancient Jews called a generation 40 years. Now, how does the Praetorist support his view? What biblical evidence does he call? Well, he calls on Matthew 24. Jesus says, and surely this generation shall not pass away until all be fulfilled. There's only one problem. Do what? Well, it all hasn't been fulfilled, but I mean just textually, there's a problem there. This generation is referring to the previous sentence. What they did is they took a sentence out of context. Well, this generation that he's talking about, the generation is talking about everything that he's talked about the last half of 24 that sees the man of lawlessness and the man of sin that comes into power. It's not talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in that section. It's talking about the people that see the signs that are fulfilled for the end times. When we come to prophecy, prophecy is twofold. In Sunday school, we've been talking about this. What does prophecy have in the short term? It has a short-term fulfillment, and then it has a what? Has long-term fulfillment. And so what we see in the 30 to 70 AD period is we have short-term fulfillment that gives validity to the long-term fulfillment. We see this with Isaiah a lot. We see this with Zechariah. We see it with Zephaniah. We see it with Daniel, do we not? Daniel has short-term fulfillment. In Daniel chapter 2, how much does Daniel talk about the Persians and the Medes on this statue? He gives it one sentence. Well, you, O Nebuchadnezzar, are a head of gold. You are, you, you are a complete king. You rule and you reign. You set up who you will set up. You put down who you will put down. And there is none that is your equal in your kingdom. Then there's going to arise a kingdom inferior to yours. That is the silver arms. And then there's going to be a kingdom that arises after that. Daniel doesn't sit on that one too long. Why? Nebuchadnezzar's buddies with the Medes and the Persians. Nebuchadnezzar actually mediates peace agreements between the Medes and the Persians and the Lydian Empire. Nebuchadnezzar knows these guys. He loves these guys. But if Daniel says these guys are going to come in and take over your kingdom, what's going to happen? He ain't going to love them anymore. We ain't going to be friends. I don't think I could stand it if you weren't my friend. So he spends just a little bit of time here. But do we see fulfillment in one man's lifetime of part of this? Yes. We see the transition here in Daniel's lifetime. Daniel is there the night that happens. Is he not? Belshazzar is throwing the big party and the Medes and the Persians come in under the water gate and they take over the whole city. It was so peaceful that most Babylonians didn't realize they had been invaded for three days. That it was just that peaceful. But Daniel's there that night and what happens to Daniel? He, has, he gets sucked out of retirement and put back into work. So we're given timelines. So the Praetor's view says everything happened in the past. This all happens in the past. There's nothing for the future that the millennial kingdom, we're, we're, we're living in a, in a stylized millennial kingdom. That was just, it's, that's just the church age. It doesn't have to be a thousand years. That it's, just, it's just thrown out there as, a, as an epoch of time. That we're just, the church age is, we're just called to make church here on the earth. That we're called to bring in God's kingdom here on the earth. And that's how Christ rules and reigns because he does it from our hearts.
Exactly. There's contradiction in thought. Now, it, you, some very great people hold this view. One of the pastors whom I love to listen to and read, Dr. Vody Bauckham, is a praetorist. He believes that the book of Revelation is all allegory, which we've established that there is some allegory, but that what it's talking about all happened, for the most part, in the past. And he, he, he kind of steps between praetorist and what's called a historical view. Um, he's praetorist on the vast majority of it, but when it comes to the last three chapters of Revelation, he's more of a historicalist that we've still got the last three to come. We're not worried about the millennial kingdom. We're just waiting on Jesus to come back and going to rule and reign. And it's just going to be he's going to give the kingdom back to the Father at that point. We, we're trying to make God's kingdom here on earth. And it's just going to be given back to God at that point. <laughs> that actually ruffled somebody's feathers here at the church, even though he loves Vody too. But, huh? It's allegorized. It's, it's just... In 70 AD, praetorists are what we would call pre-dispensationalists. And we'll talk about dispensationalism in just a minute. Just go with me for a minute. And that there was Israel and that there is now the church. And there's a flow through that. Actually, I wouldn't even call them predispensationalists. I'd call them covenant theologians. But that there's just one people of God. And that when God was through with Israel, he now goes to the church. Uh, we would call that substitution theology or replacement theology. Uh, and, it's, and it's not that you've got... It, it's... There's a lot of blurring in the four categories here. Uh, there's a lot of high points, but then there's a lot of blur in between. But the millennial kingdom is meant to, is, it's just a church age. It's the church age. When we talk, when we say big numbers in the Bible, like when we say a myriad, a myriad can be 10,000 or it can be 100,000. Which is it? Yes. Yes, exactly, Yes. But it's used to just, and when we talk about myriads and myriads of angels, is it tens of ten thousands or is it hundreds of hundred, hundred thousands of hundred thousands? What's he saying? And so when we encounter large numbers, what the praetorist says, and the, there's another guy that we'll get, another group that we'll get onto in a minute that say the same thing, is that it's just referring to a large number. It's not exact. It doesn't have to be a thousand years. That a big number. It's just like, uh, like us saying, oh, that thing weighed a ton. What, did it actually weigh 2,000 pounds? Or are we talking metric tons here, 2,204? Or uh, what are we talking? No, we, we, when we say a ton, we just mean that it was heavy. And so when we encounter large numbers in a praetorist view, talking about the Millennium Kingdom, it's just a time period, nondescript. It's an epoch, basically, is what they're saying. All right? Now, what might be a pro of being a praetorist? You ain't got to worry about it because the ship's done sailed. Yeah, baby. What's another pro to this? For the praetorist. Not necessarily for the Christian, but for the praetorist. Well, I don't have to study my Bible because it's all been done. 
The thought of having to understand this book, I ain't got to worry about it. I don't have to think. The thinking's done been done. That's the pro for the praetors. They don't have to work in it because everything's already been accomplished. It's already happened. All we're looking forward is that final. Worth. Yes, sir. Brother, I'm right there with you. I hear you. I'm just telling you what they believe because we will encounter these thoughts as we go through Revelation. There is allegory. There is stuff that we will encounter in Revelation. What, what does the angel tell John to write down? Things you have seen, things you see, and things which you will see. So, is there stuff in the past that John is concerned with? Yes, there is past stuff. So there is praetoristic stuff that we will encounter in Revelation. Like when we get to Revelation chapter 12 and we're looking at the constellations and we have the woman that is crowned with 12 stars and she has a child. Who is the woman? Who's the woman that has the child that the serpent wants to destroy? Israel. It's Israel. All right. Now, has, has that constellation alignment happened? Yes, it happened most recently in 2017. That the, the sign of Virgo aligned. She had Pleiades in her crown. The, moon, the sun and moon were at it. Well, the, the sun was at her feet and the moon transversed her body. And the, you had Draco sitting there waiting to devour the child that she would have. This happened six years ago. You know when else it happened? Anybody want to guess? Around 3 B.C., 4 B.C. It happens about every 2,000 years. I'm just, I'm just. It's coming up soon. So there was some, but, but see, it's, it's a past event, but there was also a future incarnation with it. And if the good Lord tarries on a different timeline than what we look at, guess what's going to happen again in a couple thousand years? The same constellation alignment's going to happen. So there's a past happening, there's a present happening. But in Genesis chapter 1, what are we told about the sun, moon, and the stars? They're given for what? Signs and seasons. So, we've got the Praetorist view here. Now, what's a con to the Praetorist view? What's a negative to being a Praetorist? Hmm? Yeah? What else? <laughs> Not studying your Bible? What else? But we really have to struggle to, to reconcile the world we live in with what the Bible teaches about the millennial kingdom. That, that the very obvious evil and sin that we see shouldn't belong in that kingdom. Okay. There's another one. I don't know if anybody's going to hit on it. Where was John when he wrote the book of Revelation? He's on the Isle of Patmos. Who sent John to the Isle of Patmos? What emperor? Little guy by the name of Domitian. He's Titus Vespasian's little brother. What did Titus Vespasian do? He destroyed a little church on the mountain in Jerusalem called the Temple. He becomes emperor after that, and then little brother Domitian becomes emperor after him. Domitian reigns from 80 A.D. to 96 A.D. 
When was the temple destroyed? 70 AD. So there is a timeline difference here. The Praetorist says that Revelation's written about 65 AD. John doesn't go to the Isle of Patmos for another 15, 16 years. And he probably doesn't write the book the, the day he gets there. He's probably there a couple of years. So we're probably looking at 82, 83 BC, or AD on, as a right date for the book of Revelation. Then it's got to get off the island, and John doesn't get let go until Domitian dies in 96 AD. So he's sitting on this for a hot minute, and the churches don't get it until 96 or 97 AD when John goes back to Ephesus to be pastor emeritus and live out his few remaining days. So from 70 AD, let's just say 100 AD just for numbers. We got a 30-year gap there that can't be reconciled. So there are things in the past that John writes about, and so they are to be taken as being in the past. Remember, we talked about the Old Testament guys in their writing, and they're talking about the coming of Christ. We talked about the two mountains, remember? That as you drive towards this mountain, the closer you get, the closer you get, all of a sudden you realize it's not one mountain. It's actually two that are just aligned from your point of view. And what's there in between? There's a valley in between, so there's space between. How is Isaiah going to write about the king and the government being upon his shoulders, but yet God chose to crush him for our iniquity, that it pleased the Father to crush him? How are we going to reconcile that in one advent? We don't. You've either got the coming king, or you've got the suffering servant. The two are diametrically opposed. You're not a king and the servant. And so we've got to realize that there is this mountain understanding of prophecy that as we drive to it, that it's not really one mountain, but there's two that are aligned that we see and there is space between. And so there are things that the Old Testament writers that John will even write about that are past events and have been fulfilled exactly as scripture foretells. But then there are also things that John's going to write about, that Daniel writes about, that Zechariah writes about, that Isaiah writes about, that they haven't happened yet. That they're still, for the Old Testament guys, they're still at least 2,500 years in the future for them. That would put us at today's time. So that's the Praetor's view. So. You've got full and you've got partial praetorists. The full praetorist says everything has happened and that Jesus rules the earth from inside your heart. That's what they say. Millennial kingdom's in me. I'm in the world, so millennial kingdom's in the world. And it doesn't matter how long this millennium may be. It may be three or four millenniums. But Jesus is ruling and reigning from my heart. Okay? The partial praetorist says that all of Old Testament prophecy has been fulfilled. Matthew 23 and 24 have all been fulfilled. Revelation 1 through 19 have been fulfilled, but 20, 21, and 22 have yet to be fulfilled. 
and that's the coming final judgment. <laughs> that's the great white throne. That's the one we do not want. <laughs> what you want is you want the judgment seat of Christ. When given your choice between great white throne judgment and judgment seat of Christ, take judgment seat of Christ every time. That's a judgment of reward, not a judgment of punishment. Great white throne. What? You better be ready for it. You choose by getting ready. Now, at the great white throne, there will be some reward handed out because we will have tribulation saints that will have to be reconciled to God at that moment and they will receive reward. But if your name's not found in the Lamb's book of life, well, let's look at what all you didn't do and let's look at what you did and let's compare it to the law and see where you stack up against God's holy word. And everybody will be found to be lacking at that point and will then hear the words, depart from me, ye that work iniquity, for I never knew you. Okay, so we got praetorists, semi-praetorists, and we're going to fall into the historical view. Now, what might a historical view entail? If we talked about praetors and everything's in the past, what might a historical view entail? Some of it in the past, some of it in the future. And, and in fact, I would dare say everybody in this room is going to fall right here between historical and the next one. How can it be historical if something's not happening? It's what you're doing with it. You're taking history that's being made at the moment you're alive and you're plugging it into events. And I dare say everybody in this room has done that. Have you not? Just look at the signs. Jesus is coming back any day. I'm not saying you're wrong, but I'm saying we've done that. We all do that. All oh, the handwriting's on the wall. It's, it, it could be any day. That's true. I'm not saying it's not, but what we, that's, what, that's what I'm saying. All four of these have truth to them. What we're looking at with all four of these is we're looking at a circle. You've got one here, one here, one here, one here. When actuality, the true Christian should be right there. There is stuff that is allegorical. We accept it as allegory. The, the whole Revelation 12, the woman in the sky that has the moon under her feet, the sun under her feet, the moon that traverses, crown of, crown of 12 stars being Pleiades, she has the sun. That's allegory, and that's allegory for Jesus being born. It's a story to talk about Jesus being born. We accept that. I'm not saying it's not, but it's, it's a, it's a made-up story to show something that's true. So it's an allegory. So we accept an idealist view of Revelation chapter 12, that it is allegory. We know who it's talking about. We accept who it's talking about. And in our vernacular, we worship who it's talking about. Praetorist view, we understand that there's stuff in the past. But there, but... With the historical view, we understand that there is stuff happening today that plays into what we're going to read in Revelation. When we actually start getting into like 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, um, I'm going to challenge some of you greatly. <coughs> some of you will probably get mad at me. That's okay, because some of the stuff we have been taught over the years 
was pulled horribly out of context because it challenged me as I was reading it. And I have to let scripture be right and me be wrong. That's the hard part that we have within the church today. We dictate the Bible by our feelings. We dictate the Bible by our emotions. Well, my Jesus wouldn't send anybody to hell. Of course your Jesus wouldn't. You made him up. He doesn't have the power to send anybody to hell. Well, God loves everybody. Yes, in a provenient sense. But God does not extend grace to everybody. Let's let's go back to the Psalms. God says, I hate this person. I hate this person. Jacob have I loved. Esau have I hated. Well, that's just... He's just talking about he just didn't choose Esau. No. Look at what Esau's line becomes. Jacob have I loved. I've loved Jacob so much that I'm going to use his sons and his son's sons and his son's son's sons all the way down until we've got this little girl who's on the outskirts uh, up in the Galilee. And there's going to be a carpenter who I've cut off from ever being king over Jerusalem, but he's got the bloodline to be king. And I'm going to use it all the way down to these two people. And that little girl is going to have the blessing of the nations. And so we see all this happening. But God's working in that. God's choosing that. And we talk about love and we talk about hate. Well, well, God just wants to save everybody. No, no, baby. God, God is willing that none should perish, but God doesn't will that none should perish. To be willing and to will are two different things. You've got willing is more like a permissive will. God, God sent Jesus to die. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. There's a caveat in that. What is that caveat? Whosoever believes. Now, R.C. Sproul would kill me for saying this. That's okay. He, he, he's already gone on before. The blood of Christ. When we, talk about, when we talk about Calvinism, I'm not here to talk about Calvinism, but I want to pull what's called limited atonement out. If you hear people talk about the tulip acrostic, it's the L. It means limited atonement. Now, I have had students that tried to explain it and say, well, that, that just means God says you can only sin so much. And then he's just done with you. No, baby, God looked ahead in time. He took your stupidity into account when he called you. I think that ought to be written in the back of every General Motors (laughs) car owner's handbook. But God took your stupidity into account. God knew what sin you were going to commit. He knows how many times you're going to sin. he's, He's smart like that. He's already there. And Jesus didn't die on that cross, and he said, well... I'm going to save David as long as he stops sinning on January 25th, 2021. And then on, 20, on the 26th, if he sins, mm, that sucker's out of here. That's, that's not what limited atonement is. What limited atonement says is, in a nutshell, and this is the part R.C. Sproul would, would hate me for, is that the blood is sufficient for every sin under the sun that is committed by non-believers. That the blood of Christ, if every person under the sun that has ever sinned were to go to God in a humble and contrite heart and beg for forgiveness and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that it is sufficient to cover every single one of those sins. It's sufficient for all, but not efficacious for all. 
Are there people that are dying today and going to hell? Is Jesus' blood effective for them? No. Because if it was, we, we tiptoe into what's called universalism. Well, Jesus died for everybody. He died for the opportunity. What, what did they say about that? They wrote about He's going to say, get out of here. I don't know you. Not that he doesn't know your name, but we didn't have relationship. We didn't commune. We, you didn't invite me in to sit down at the kitchen table and let's have a coffee or something. Let's chit the chat or something like that. Of course he does, because your Jesus is a figment of your imagination. And the kicker with our society is, whose hell is it? Our society puts Satan as ruling hell, or Abaddon as being in charge of hell. Abaddon may be over the abyss, but who's in charge of Abaddon? God. It's God's hell. God created hell. Well, God just wouldn't send for God created it. Why isn't he willing to allow some people to choose to go there? God's going to tell those on that day, look, you wanted a life without me. You didn't want to talk to me. You didn't want to spend time with me. Why would I force you to do that for an eternity? If you, if you didn't want to be with me for 80 years, why would you want me or forever. Go out into outer darkness. Leave. I don't want you here. You didn't want me. I don't want, I don't want to force you to be here. So bye. And that's, that's how we create our church. But back to the historical view, we take things from our history, from modern history, and we plug them in. 1947, 48, and 49. What happens in 1947? The United Nations votes to put Israel back as a country. 1948, what happens? The land is established as a country. 1949, what happens? The, the Knesseret, the Israeli government, is established. Did somebody say I was born over here or something? <laughs> I was here. <laughs> Your giggle said it all. <laughs> but we've got three events that happen. And what do we say about the people that were alive when that happened? Where do we plug them into scripture? Into Matthew 24. Surely this generation shall not pass away until they see all fulfilled. Meaning that if, as long as there's one person from that generation still alive... That whole generation will not have passed away until they see all that fulfilled. See, we do the same thing. That's why I say most of us land between historical and the one we'll cover in just a minute. But historical, what, what's, a, what's a good thing about historical, the historical view? It uses the text. Hmm? You use the text. People that, that hold a strict historical view, they are in the word. They are... Jack Van Impey knew prophecy scripture like nobody's business. Now, he would try to sell you books all day long, but he knew prophetic scripture like nobody's business. He could quote the whole book of Isaiah. He could quote all of Zechariah, quote all of Revelation. And then in some of these minor guys, he, would, he, he could get you in the neighborhood. I don't know if it's this one or this one, but it's just so exciting, Rexella. And he would go into it. 
but he's a historical view. You know what? There's a lot of great guys that are in the historical view. Wycliffe, Tyndall, Spurgeon, Uzigli, um, trying to think, uh, Gutenberg, Martin Luther. These guys were all historical view guys. So if you consider yourself a strict historical view person, you are in great company because all of the guys that I just named, what are they responsible for? John Wycliffe, what is he responsible for? The Bible in English, getting it mass-produced and put into people's hands. Tyndall, what is he known for? Hmm? He's a translator. He was one of the guys that helped translate. What's Spurgeon known for? Preaching with power and leading thousands to the throne of God. You've got all these guys. Martin Luther, what was his big stance? Biblical accuracy. Let's do what the Bible says. Gutenberg, what did Gutenberg invent? The printing press. And what's the first thing that they mass produce? The Bible. So if you're a historical view person, you are in great company. These people know the scriptures. Is there a con to being a historical view person? I can only think of one. See if y'all think of it or if y'all come up with something else. I don't think that it would be that you don't look beyond the scriptures. Um, that's a good thought, though. I think the problem is actually the opposite. That you read too much into certain scriptures. That you work so hard to make an event that's happening fit what the scripture says that sometimes we either change the event or we're guilty of changing scripture. Now, the changing of scripture for people that really hold the historical view, I'm going to say that's a minor problem. We're more guilty of twisting the event to fit scripture. Because people that fall into this view, you have people, excuse me, you have people in these views that have a high view of scripture, but you have the majority that it's a great book. And it's a great book to live by. Is it 100% accurate? Eh, maybe, maybe not. They don't have nearly as high a view as these people do. The, the historical view, and I think the big problem with the historical view is we are guilty into reading too much into the passage. As, like Taylor and I, we were talking about a passage in uh, First Peter, and it's talking about baptism, and it's talking about Noah being saved through the water. Now, if we wanted to read hard into that, what are we going to say baptism does? Saves you. Does baptism save you? No. No. And see, but we're, when we take a, a hardline historical view on prophecy, we're guilty of doing the same thing. We're trying to read too much into the scripture and looking at the events. Oh, this, 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 and this. So this has got to be this, and that's going to make this, this. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't times that it's not true that what we see happening around us is a part of scriptural fulfillment. Just, 
So, somewhat of a literalism. Yeah. So being too literal in, cert, in certain circumstances. We've already established that there is allegory, that there is history, uh, but in the historical view, we might be taking things too literally when we need to take How many guys have set dates for the coming of Christ? Well, see, that, uh, I'm, I'm giving you the extreme view of it, but guys that set hard dates. Now, we're going to talk about dates as we get into it um, and some things for you to look at, but th those are the extreme cases of it. Could Christ come back today? Praise God if he does. Absolutely. I... Based on the timelines and calendars that I see in Scripture, I think we're yet a few years from it. Just my opinion. Nothing more. Uh, so I think we're just a few years yet from Christ coming back based on the calendars that we're given in Scripture. And we'll talk some more about calendars uh, if we have time in a few minutes. If not, we'll talk about them next week. Ooh, no, we don't have time. <laughs> let, me, let me get on to the last view. What we have is the futurist. All right, now what, <laughs> if the historical view says we're taking everything that's happening around us, we're plugging it in scripture, what does the futurist view say? It all, none of it's happened yet. It's all yet to be. But see, what I said about all four of these is we've got all four of these around this circle when actuality, the truth is right in the middle. We need to be a little bit idealist in certain passages, and we need to look at that. This is where reading sources from the time outside of the Bible helps. Like to read Herodotus, the historian, or Josephus, guys that are writing when this stuff is written, and you get a feel for what's allegory, what's not, what would be considered literal, what's not, and that's, that's what we want to be. C.H. Purgeon said, visit many good books, but live in the Bible. And that's what we want to do, is we want to go knock on the doors of these guys that were writing at that time. But we want to live in the scripture. We want to filter everything through the scripture. Um, when Paul talks about women should keep their hair covered when they go into the assembly, we take all that to mean, well, that women should wear headscarves. That's not what Paul's saying. The word that Paul uses there is the word parabolion. It's a medical term. It refers to male anatomy. And basically what Paul's saying is women need to be dressed modestly when they go to church. What they believed about hair and the, the, the act of reproduction that it tells you that they looked at women's hair as being a part of their sexual anatomy. And so the hair should be covered. Just like if somebody were to come in, they got shirts on, they got shoes on, but no pants. We're going to be like, oh, no, no service for that either. Y'all just go on out. But, but that's what Paul's saying. But see, how many cultures have had women wearing scarves for years because of what they understood? Paul's not saying that Yes, this is exactly how reproduction works, and so women are to keep their hair covered forever and ever and ever. Paul, what Paul's saying, allegorically, is dress modestly. Keep what needs to be covered, covered. So he's wanting everybody 
to walk in a way that is honoring to God. It's, it's not about the scarf itself. But, see, to, you, you wouldn't know that unless you read Herodotus and Hippocrates, who was a doctor about the same time Paul is writing. And you read their text and you understand, oh, this is a medical term. Let me see what he's talking about. And the doctor of modern medicine, the, the, the father of modern medicine, Hippocrates, is talking about the hair being part of a woman's sexual organ, and so that she's better to, con the longer hair she has, the more apt she is to conceive a child. But we know scientifically that's not the case, right? Right. So what Paul is saying is I want the women to be dressed modestly in a time when they could be forcibly stripped down and forced to walk around is scantily clad or not clad at all, Paul's saying be modest. And so we've got to be able to understand those types of things. So read some of these. Um, I'm going to be posting articles and videos for you guys to watch and read. Uh, there's another one on a calendar that I'm going to post this week. It's, I think it's about an hour long. It's on YouTube. It's called Jesus 2030, I believe is the name of it. Some of you may have seen it. Some of you may have not. Um, it is worth the read because next week we're going to talk about calendars that God gives us. We talked about one tonight, but God gives us several calendars, and we've got to understand these as we go forward because they're all talked about in Revelation. Revelation has 404 verses. It has something like 830, 840 Old Testament references that we need to understand what it's talking about. So it, we're not going to fly through Revelation. I do want us to take our time. I want us to break it apart. I want us to break it open. Um, you're going to be challenged on some common beliefs that you hold. Uh, I know because I was challenged on some beliefs that I have held. And we are here to let the Bible change us, not us change it. Where do I fall? <coughs> if this is idealist, this is preterist, this is historical, and this is futurist, I probably fall somewhere about right there. I'm not, there's some idealist stuff I don't agree with. There's some futurist stuff I don't agree with. I'm, 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 I'm more right here and less right here. Yeah. Well, see, that, that's the problem with being the futurist. So, I, I want, at the end of this, I want us to be as close to center on this as we possibly can be. Because all four are applicable, just like we'll talk about dispensationalism next week. There is validity to dispensationalism. It's not a strict code of theology, but there is something to it that we need to abide by. Any other questions, thoughts, comments, snarks, conundrums, complaints? If you got complaints, give them to my wife. She just left. <laughs> Anything else? All right, well, somebody close us out in prayer, and then we'll adjourn until next week. Amen.